Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to cover Kawasaki disease and henoch schoenlein purpura. There are other types of vasculitis that can happen in kids, but HSP is the most common by the numbers, Kawasaki is the most pediatric-specific, and they're the two that the boards seem to care about the most. In both conditions, early recognition is important to avoid long-term complications, so we'll get started. First, henoch schoenlein purpura. Not surprisingly, it's named after two German doctors, Edward Hinoch and Johann Schoenlein, who connected the symptoms of purpura, abdominal pain, and arthritis in the 1860s. The condition was actually first described by William Heberden and Robert Willen in the early 1800s, but Heberden-Willen disease just never caught on. HSP is a vasculitis caused by IgA deposition that affects small blood vessels. It can affect people of any age, but more than 90% of cases are in kids younger than 10 years old. It's most common in white and Asian children, and twice as common in boys as it is in girls. Episodes often follow an upper respiratory infection, so most cases happen in the fall and winter. The classic, can't-make-the-diagnosis-without-it-finding in HSP is palpable purpura. Purpura are dark red or purple spots that are caused by bleeding in and under the skin, which, in the case of HSP, is caused by the underlying vasculitis. The purpura in HSP are classically on the legs and on the butt, so when it comes to tests, you're almost guaranteed to see a picture of spotty red legs at some point. In practice, it's important to keep in mind that purpura show up below the waist because they tend to form in pressure-dependent areas. That means that infants and other patients that spend a lot of time laying down can get purpura in other areas, so don't be fooled if it's not on their legs. Wherever they are, the skin lesions usually last somewhere between 3 and 10 days before going away on their own. Moving down the list of common symptoms, up to 80% of cases have joint involvement with either arthralgia or arthritis, and yes, there's a difference between the two. Arthralgia is pain, plain and simple, while arthritis involves signs of inflammation, usually swelling or redness. Joint involvement in HSP typically affects the large joints of the lower extremities, so hips, knees, and ankles, and often migrates, with one joint hurting for a few days before it calms down and another acts up. The last major clinical feature to mention is GI involvement. As many as 75% of patients with HSP also have gastrointestinal symptoms, and most of the time is diffuse, colicky abdominal pain. Blood vessels in the bowel wall are affected by the vasculitis, which causes pain and swelling, and, in up to 50% of patients, at least a small amount of bleeding. The edema can put patients at risk for intussusception, and there are also rare cases of bowel ischemia, necrosis, and perforation. Those are the main clinical manifestations of HSP, but it's the invisible one you really have to worry about. 30 to 50% of patients with HSP have some level of kidney involvement. The problem is that it's generally asymptomatic. There's a broad range of severity, everything from small amounts of hematuria all the way through crescentic glomerulonephritis and rapid progression to end-stage renal disease and dialysis. So things can go really badly really quickly if you aren't paying attention. Monitoring blood pressure is helpful, but the best tool is urinalysis to look for blood and protein in the urine. Most patients who are going to have kidney problems develop signs within the first month or so, and 97% will show something within six months. The general consensus seems to be that you should do a weekly urinalysis and blood pressure check for six to eight weeks, 
and space it out to every other week or even every month up until the six-month mark if everything stays normal. You should call a nephrologist if the patient starts developing hypertension, edema, proteinuria, or visible hematuria. Making a diagnosis of HSP is all about the symptoms. You absolutely have to have palpable purpura, and from there you need to find at least one of abdominal pain, arthritis or arthralgia, evidence of proteinuria or hematuria, or IgA deposits on a biopsy. In classic cases, the rash comes first, followed by other symptoms, but patients don't always read the same textbooks we do, so you should keep HSP in the back of your mind if any of the symptoms are present. Outside of the urinalysis, labs don't have much of a role in diagnosing or managing HSP, but they can be helpful in ruling other things out. The differential for rash, joint pain, and abdominal pain gets pretty broad, and it's easy to mistake HSP for lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, or other rheumatologic problems. Most of those other conditions are more serious than HSP, so you're not wrong to talk things over with a rheumatologist and think about some labs to rule out the other diseases if you're concerned enough. Hemac Schoenlein purpura is typically self-limited, and symptoms resolve within four to six weeks in most cases, so the majority of management is symptomatic. NSAIDs are helpful for joint pain, but you need to be cautious using them in patients with renal involvement. It's also important to monitor nutrition and hydration status. Some patients do have trouble eating because of the abdominal pain, and I've seen admissions for dehydration and even tube feeding as a result of HSP. Kidney surveillance is the most important part of management, and patients who have significant renal disease might need immunosuppressive medications or even dialysis, but that's something we can skip in this podcast and leave it to the nephrologists and rheumatologists. About one in three patients will have a recurrent episode, but I didn't find any evidence to say that relapses should be treated any differently than new onset cases. For now, remember that most cases of HSP are mild and the vast majority of patients are completely fine. Moving on to Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease is really interesting because we know a lot about what it does to the body and next to nothing about how it does those things or what causes it. There are seasonal peaks, and cases often happen in geographic clusters, which makes it seem like there might be an infectious cause, but none of the candidates have panned out. There's also been some thought that it could be toxin-mediated, but there isn't really any data to back that up either. There's probably a genetic component. Data from Japan shows that siblings of kids with Kawasaki disease have a 10 times higher risk of developing it themselves, but no specific gene has been identified. Putting it all together into one theory, any number of potential agents could trigger a final common pathway that leads to Kawasaki disease in someone who's genetically susceptible. Or, in other words, we don't know. Regardless of what the underlying cause is, Kawasaki disease is a vasculitis that affects medium-sized arteries, most importantly, the coronary arteries. It's the leading cause of acquired heart disease in developed countries, with kids under 6 months old, over 9 years old, boys, and patients with Asian or Hispanic ancestry being at the highest risk for poor outcomes. Inflammation of the coronary arteries can cause the vessels to dilate and in more severe cases develop aneurysms, and the longer the disease goes on without treatment, the higher the risk of coronary complications. Since we generally like to avoid damage to the blood vessels supplying the heart, making an early diagnosis is the most important thing you can do for a patient with Kawasaki disease. Because we have no idea what actually causes Kawasaki disease, there's no one lab test to make the diagnosis. Instead, it's all based on clinical criteria. 
Fever for five days is an absolute must for the diagnosis, and the other clinical signs are non-purulent bilateral conjunctivitis, rash, cervical lymphadenopathy with at least one node that's larger than one and a half centimeters in diameter, oral mucous membrane changes like cracked lips or strawberry tongue, and peripheral extremity changes including redness of the palms or soles, swelling of the hands and feet, or peeling around the nails. Fever plus four out of five clinical criteria, or fewer than four criteria if the patient has coronary aneurysms on imaging, is enough to make the diagnosis. Fever has to be part of the symptoms, and it's typically higher than 102 degrees. The other symptoms, though, can come and go over time, so it's important to get a detailed history to try to rule it out. Crash and burn is a mnemonic for diagnosing Kawasaki. C for conjunctivitis, R for rash, A for adenopathy, S for strawberry tongue, H for hands and feet, and burn for the fever. If you've listened in the past, you know that I generally don't go for mnemonics, but this one is really pretty helpful. The diagnostic criteria are nice and straightforward, but it only works for the kids that present with the right clinical picture. Unfortunately for us, there are a lot of patients who don't quite check off all the boxes, but we can't write them off too quickly when the consequence of not treating Kawasaki disease is coronary artery disease. For these kids, we rely on some labs to help us out in making a diagnosis of incomplete or atypical Kawasaki disease, and the American Heart Association has a handy algorithm that's been pretty well validated in studies since it was first published in 2004. Patients get started in the algorithm if they've had five or more days of fever with two or three of the clinical criteria, or if they're under a year old with seven or more days of fever without an identified source. From there, you check a C-reactive protein, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, and urinalysis. For the urinalysis, you're looking for 10 or more white blood cells per high-power field, and you should do a clean catch or even just a straight urine sample rather than catheterized because the leukocytes in Kawasaki disease are mainly in the urethra. On the lab work, a CRP greater than or equal to 30 milligrams per liter, an ESR of 40 millimeters per hour or higher, albumin less than 3, elevated ALT, white blood cell count over 15, anemia, and platelets over 450 are all considered abnormal. I know that's a lot of numbers all at once, but we'll take a minute to walk through the algorithm. If your patient qualifies for the algorithm, that's five or more days of fever with two to three clinical signs, or an infant with a week of unexplained fevers, you draw the labs, starting with ESR and CRP. If both the ESR and CRP are normal, you can rule out Kawasaki for now and keep following clinically and potentially with serial labs if things don't improve. If either of the ESR or CRP is elevated, and again that's 40 millimeters per hour or higher for the ESR and 30 milligrams per liter or higher for the CRP, you look at the rest of the labs. To make the diagnosis, you need at least three of elevated ALT, albumin less than or equal to three, 10 or more white blood cells per high power field on urinalysis, a white blood cell count of 15 or more on the CBC, anemia, or platelets over 450. If the patient has three or more of the lab criteria, you get an echocardiogram to evaluate the coronaries and start treatment. If they don't, or if they're less than six months old, you still get an echo to evaluate the coronaries for signs of dilation as the last step in ruling out Kawasaki disease. We won't get into too much detail about echoes. 
Because coronary artery involvement is what we're most afraid of in Kawasaki disease, an echocardiogram is a major tool in diagnosis and follow-up because it gives us a pretty accurate assessment of the coronaries without having to do anything invasive. The main thing we're looking for on echo is dilations or aneurysms of the coronary arteries, but you shouldn't worry about the exact definitions of those findings until your cardiology fellowship. Since coronary artery changes can develop over time, it's recommended that every patient who's treated for Kawasaki disease have an echo at diagnosis, one to two weeks after completing treatment, and five to six weeks after discharge. The data shows that any coronary artery changes are likely to happen by six weeks, so if kids are still normal then, they'll probably stay that way. For any questions about treating Kawasaki disease, the answer is almost always IVIG and aspirin. We don't know exactly how it works, but it does, which is why there haven't been any major changes in treatment protocols for a long time. IVIG stands for intravenous immunoglobulin, which is exactly what it sounds like, immunoglobulins that are given to a patient through an IV line. The immunoglobulins are derived from plasma donations, and since the United States is one of the few countries that gives cash for plasma, we are a huge worldwide supplier of IVIG. Like I mentioned, the mechanism of how exactly IVIG treats Kawasaki isn't very well understood, but the general thought is that the immunoglobulins bind and neutralize whatever is causing the problem. IVIG treatment can be associated with fevers and aseptic meningitis, especially in the first 48 hours after it's given, so give it a day or two before you think your treatment failed. Kawasaki disease is also one of the very few conditions where we give kids aspirin, and we start at anywhere from 30 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day before dropping down to 3 to 5 milligrams per kilogram per day through the six-week follow-up echo. When that drop-off happens is variable, which means no test questions about it. Some doctors make the change after 48 hours without fevers, while others keep the higher dose for up to two weeks. Patients who don't respond to initial treatment, which is defined as persistent fevers for more than 48 hours after completing IVIG, are considered refractory Kawasaki disease, and there's really no consensus on what to do with them. Most doctors try giving a second round of IVIG, although there's no definitive data in any direction. The AHA guidelines also say you can consider pulsed, then tapered steroids, and there's also some information that infliximab, an anti-tumor necrosis factor medication, has some efficacy in refractory cases. For our purposes, it's probably worth remembering to try a second round of IVIG, but for the rest, we can leave it up to our rheumatology friends. That's all for our two major flavors of pediatric vasculitis, HSP and Kawasaki disease. For HSP, look for palpable purpura on the lower extremities along with abdominal pain and joint pain. It's generally self-limited without major complications, but you should do regular urinalysis to look for kidney involvement and be vigilant for severe GI disease. For Kawasaki disease, Remember crash and burn for the major diagnostic criteria, conjunctivitis, rash, adenopathy, strawberry tongue, changes to the hands and feet, and a fever, and refer back to the AHA algorithm for the borderline cases. You're almost never wrong to do an echo to evaluate the coronaries, or call rheumatology for help, and the standard treatment is IVIG and aspirin. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you find your podcasts. Like always, you can send any feedback or suggestions for future episodes to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.